A border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is open this morning to some foreign passport holders, but it's unclear exactly who's being allowed across. It's Wednesday, November 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Donald Trump Jr. will testify today in the Trump Organization's civil fraud trial. Also, the city of New Bedford is becoming more attractive to developers, but some longtime residents say they're being pushed out. What are you doing to our city? You're allowing other people from other cities to come in here and, and buy out these houses. And this hour, a North Carolina congressman finds popularity on TikTok. They come up to me at Walmart, on the sidewalk, when I'm at the park with my kids, and they say, hey, I really like your video on this. The lessons he has for other politicians trying to reach a younger audience. Cloudy with a chance of showers today, it'll be in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Hundreds of people are being allowed to leave Gaza today and cross into Egypt. Many of the wounded and injured evacuees are being escorted across the Rafah border by ambulances following negotiations involving Egypt, Israel and Hamas. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reports Egyptian television is showing others, including the first group of foreign passport holders, are walking to the terminal separating Egypt from Gaza. A first group of foreign passport holders have left Gaza. It's the first time that that's happened since October 7th. They are currently inside the terminal at the Rafah border crossing and are waiting to cross into Egypt. The Rafah border crossing into Egypt is the only land crossing in and out of Gaza not controlled by Israel. And typically, after civilians pass all the checks on the Palestinian side, they take a bus or a car a few hundred yards before they can go through to the Egyptian side and cross into Egypt. That's NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reporting from Tel Aviv. President Biden will travel to Minnesota today to announce a $5 billion investment in rural America. NPR's Tamara Keith reports this includes money to improve broadband and programs for sustainable agriculture. Biden will visit a family farm in rural Minnesota to make the announcement. It's part of a Biden administration push to draw attention to programs that are designed to create jobs and promote economic stability in rural communities, says Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. This really does constitute an historic opportunity, an historic level of, of investment in a new economic opportunity for rural America. And I think it's reflective of President Biden's belief that zip code ought not to determine your economic future. Rural areas overwhelmingly vote Republican, but the Biden re-election campaign is hoping to cut into their margins by speaking to issues that affect them. Biden will also speak at a campaign fundraiser in Minneapolis. Tamara Keith, NPR News. No changes to interest rates are expected to be announced today. Steve Beckner reports the Federal Reserve is wrapping up its latest policy meeting. Since leaving short-term interest rates unchanged in September, Fed policymakers have said they can proceed carefully, leaving the impression they will extend their rate hike pause. But inflation is still running well above the Fed's 2% target amid strong economic growth. So Chairman Jerome Powell may well signal another possible rate hike before year's end. That's Steve Beckner reporting. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower. This is NPR News 
in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The number of families seeking shelter in Massachusetts is soon expected to exceed the number of places to put them. That'll trigger the use of a waitlist system. That'll be a first for Massachusetts, which has a law that guarantees shelter for families who need it. Governor Maura Healey told WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday that she's been begging the Biden administration to assist the state with the recent influx of new arrivals. We're seeing between 40 and 50 families a day arriving here in Massachusetts. We do not have the shelter space, the physical space. We do not have the number of shelter providers and service providers to be able to withstand this capacity. And we don't have the funding. A judge is expected to rule today on a lawsuit challenging the legality of the waitlist system. With a backdrop of the war between Israel and Hamas, the Boston Jewish Film Festival gets underway today. Ken Shulman is the festival's board chair. He says there will be appropriate security measures in place at all the festival venues. Never before have I felt nervous about proclaiming my Judaism and being Jewish in public. For me, being able to come together with the community and with people who appreciate our community to live our Judaism and our culture openly, is beyond meaningful. The festival runs in person through November 12th and virtually from the 13th to the 15th. Multilingual signs will welcome visitors to beaches in greater Boston in time for next summer. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says the signs will communicate important water safety information. They were originally supposed to be installed last year. DCR blames low staffing for the delay. Residents of 100 public housing units in Revere now have access to free Wi-Fi. The residents will also have access to a 24-7 help desk for troubleshooting connectivity issues. The service is funded by local, state, and federal pandemic relief money and run by the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. Council Deputy Executive Director Lizzie Wyatt says the residents are excited. People are talking about making sure that their children have equal access to the Internet, which would just be a game changer because a lot of school is done online these days. Job seekers are really excited about being able to actually look for a job in their home as opposed to having to go to the library and kind of check out time. Wyant says she's working to expand to other communities in the future. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Celtics look to keep their undefeated season going tonight as they host the Indiana Pacers at the World Series last night. The Texas Rangers beat the Arizona Diamondbacks 11-7. The Rangers lead the series three games to one and can capture their first-ever title with a win tonight. Cloudy today with a slight chance of showers. It'll be in the mid-40s, clearing overnight with temperatures near 30, sunny tomorrow, and in the upper 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Ramallah. We are co-hosting the program from this city near Jerusalem. Buildings of concrete and white stone spread out on the hillsides for miles. This is the West Bank, a largely Palestinian area, and Palestinian activists 
have called for a general strike here today. They are protesting Israel's military campaign southwest of here in Gaza, responding to the attack by Hamas. Last evening, TV screens showed buildings blown apart after an Israeli airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. Afterward, rows of bodies wrapped in white cloth lined the street outside a nearby hospital. NPR's Greg Myrie is following this from Tel Aviv. Hey there, Greg. Hi, Steve. Why does Israel say it struck such a densely populated area? Well, they say the target was this top Hamas commander, Ibrahim Biari. Then they describe him as one of the key Hamas figures in the October 7th Hamas slaughter in Israel. The Israelis say Biari and dozens of other Hamas militants were in a tunnel network beneath the Jabalia camp. And they assess that Biari and many of these others were killed. Uh, photos from the scene show these deep craters. And, and some analysts say this does point to the possibility or even likelihood that the airstrikes hit tunnels and force them to collapse. Okay, do Palestinians and Hamas admit to that? Well, we know they have tunnels. That's not in dispute. But the group says that Biari, the Hamas commander, was not there at the time of the strike and that Israel is intentionally killing Palestinian civilians. According to the Interior Ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, Israeli fighter jets unloaded at least six large bombs on the neighborhood. It's a scene of utter devastation. We see apartment blocks and homes just reduced to chunks of concrete. Uh, Palestinians are calling it one of the deadliest Israeli attacks yet, though we do not have reliable casualty figures. Is this strike at all connected with the Israeli ground troops who have now been moving in that area so far as we know? Well, Steve, I think it potentially says a lot about what's coming. The Israeli troops have now reached the outskirts of Gaza City, the biggest city in the territory. It seems they're trying to push the Hamas fighters to squeeze them into Gaza City and then use airstrikes to hit them. Uh, the Israelis are also talking a lot about the Hamas tunnel network, saying this is where Hamas fighters are concentrated. And, and as we've seen, Israel is, is prepared to use powerful bombs to penetrate the tunnels. But human rights groups are saying it's not acceptable to bomb in this way when so many civilians are present above ground. The leading Israeli human rights group, uh, Bet Salem, said in a statement that, quote, not everything is allowed in war, including war on Hamas. Okay, so that is one of the big stories today. Would you catch us up on another one, Greg? A lot of people are stuck in Gaza who want out, including Americans. Are they getting out now? So hundreds of people are lined up on the Gaza side of the Rafah border crossing, which is the boundary with Egypt. Now, these are foreign nationals who are trying to leave, have been trying to leave, and it appears this could happen today, though the emphasis is on could. The crossing has been used to allow some aid trucks into Gaza, but it has been closed for anyone trying to leave Gaza. There are several hundred U.S. passport holders who are among those stuck in Gaza and are desperately trying to get out. In addition, 81 people badly injured in Gaza will be allowed to go to Egypt to receive medical treatment, according to Palestinian officials. So there have been a number of false starts about the opening at the Rafah crossing, but there is hope that it will open today. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thanks so much. Sure thing, Steve. Now, the West Bank, where we are broadcasting today, is the other big Palestinian area which Israel occupied in a war more than 50 years ago. Hamas does not rule here, but has supporters, as we saw in the Alamari refugee camp. 
Palestinians driven out of Israel upon Israel's independence moved to that camp in the late 1940s. This area started maybe as tents or shacks, and it's been built up layer by layer of concrete block buildings with hardly any planning. We're in this narrow alley. It's just an improvised neighborhood. Look at it. NPR producer Nuha Musle was helping us to look. We read graffiti on the walls. Hamas passed here. That's yes, what the graffiti Hamas, says. Hamas passed here. She pointed out posters on shop after shop, which show men Israel has killed or imprisoned. Let's see the date here. Mm. So he was killed on the 16th of June, 2023. And he had spent so much time in jail, and then he got, they came in and, and shot him again. I want to be clear, everybody on these posters are people who, according to Israel, is a criminal. And up and down the street, there are posters celebrating them. Yes, celebrate. These are the heroes of the resistance. As we talked to men in this neighborhood, several said they had been imprisoned at one time or another. Nuha Musle led the way toward a doorway. That's the coffee shop. We're going to go up to it there. Please lead the way. More posters outside the coffee shop. We found men smoking and playing cards. When we asked about the war, they talked of what they see as Israel's abuses here. Israeli settlers on the West Bank have taken much of the land, and security forces conduct raids against what they consider terrorist threats. Wherever we go, we get humiliated. If we're found at checkpoints, the Israeli humiliate us. If we travel, we are humiliated. All the time, we are humiliated. Several teenagers gathered around, so we turned to them. And our producer asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? The future in Palestine is either a prisoner or a martyr or an injured person. That's a common answer here, although Nuha Musle did a useful thing. She waited a minute and asked the question again and got different answers. What do you want to study? He wants to be a lawyer. I want to be an accountant. I want to be a lawyer because only a lawyer will be empowered to, to, to defend Palestinians. I want to be an engineer. So they do have dreams, though they doubt those dreams will come true. Until very recently, some Israeli officials said dreams like that were the way to peace. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked of prosperity for Palestinians as a substitute for a fully independent state, which he opposed. Many Palestinians reject that, as we heard in another coffee shop in a more prosperous part of town. Sorry about that. It's okay. I haven't had my morning coffee yet. No, it's okay. It's okay. Ahmed Aweda is the owner of Zaman, a word that means old times. He said we must order something. Because, you know, this is my coffee shop. In Arab culture, it's really rude if you come to my home and you don't accept my hospitality. You can order an Americano or a cappuccino instead of traditional Arabic coffee. This is one of many businesses Aweda has owned over the years. When I first met him here almost a decade ago, he was running the Palestinian Stock Exchange. The last time we talked, when you were at the Stock Exchange, you saw that as part of building a Palestinian national identity. Absolutely. How did that work out? Well, depends. He argues that Palestinian businesses suffer under Israeli oversight. 
He then offered what he called a frightening reality, that something else highlighted the Palestinian cause, the October 7th attack by Hamas. I don't think we've ever, you know, we've ever been in the center of the hearts and minds of the entire world like we are now, albeit for an extremely heavy price. Like some others we met here, Aweda minimized the violence of the Hamas attack that killed 1,400 people. Maybe not me personally, but, uh, you know, for people who have tried the political process for 30 years now, maybe the path of armed resistance is a solution. This is a particular kind of armed resistance, though, targeting women and children, oh, targeting oh, armed is, people. Is the, oh, the Israelis target women and children all the time. Israel denies deliberately targeting civilians. Aweda does not talk, as Hamas has, of driving Jews from Israel. He talks instead of a rainbow state where all people would enjoy equal rights. Yet he argues the Hamas attack had a certain effect. Because the entire world had forgotten about the Palestinians, the Israelis had forgotten about the Palestinians. The occupation became sort of the occupation number 54 on any average Israeli's mind. You know, it was, there was this certain belief that this really could go on forever at a very, very low cost. Meaning that the occupation could continue Would continue forever, the, the settlement building would continue forever, and that this, the Palestinians were going to shut up and just lump it and continue, end up living in isolated little cantons among a sea of uh, Jewish settlement. He is now hoping Israel will more seriously consider a political solution. I'm interested in what you foresee, you say, after this, meaning after this war between Israel and Hamas. Israel intends to crush Hamas. Well, yeah, yeah, Israel tends to crush Hamas, like Hamas is a thing that you can crush. This is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Israel has said Hamas is a terrorist organization separate from the Palestinian national cause. Aweda says it's a political movement. And if he sounds angry at times, he says he has a reason. He pulled out his phone and brought up a photo. This is my grandfather's house in West Jerusalem. He says his family was evicted from that stone house after Israel's victory in the 1967 war. 56 years later, Aweda says he still goes there with his cousin and they have breakfast while sitting on a bench in the garden. Do you expect something for that property? Absolutely. What do you expect? To, to have minimum, it minimum a recognition of the guilt, that for a start, the psychological closure. This kind of historical view is not Israel's priority right now. Israel says it needs to eliminate an enemy that killed civilians and continues firing rockets at Israeli cities. Israel has said it is premature to say what kind of Palestinian government might follow Hamas. Whoever it is will face the reality of millions of Palestinians in Gaza and here on the West Bank who say they belong here. From Ramallah on the West Bank, this is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, President Biden visits a family farm in Minnesota today, less than a week after the state's Democratic representative, Dean Phillips, announced his intent to challenge Biden in the 2024 primary. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Science Club for Girls growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers, and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. 
During the pandemic, the government spent millions to build U.S. factories to produce personal protective equipment, or PPE. But it has been tough going. Take exam gloves. I don't think any of that capacity is up and running yet. You don't think any of it is? To my knowledge, no. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We hear about efforts to bring production of PPE to the U.S. on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Right now, learn more about the secret professional life of writer Louisa May Alcott. You probably know her as the author of Little Women, but she also wrote under pen names. And a Northeastern researcher believes he found a new one linked to 14 new works. Check out the story at WBUR.org. Overcast with highs in the mid-40s today. There's a slight chance of showers. Still overcast this evening and temperatures may break into the upper 20s. Clearing overnight, then tomorrow sunny with highs in the upper 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential, starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness, with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The cost of housing in New Bedford has skyrocketed in recent years. Many low-income residents say rent hikes are forcing them out of the city or even to the brink of homelessness. WBUR's Simone Rios reports on what happens when a historically affordable community is suddenly beyond the reach of many. Sherry Barrows sits on her twin sister's front porch right outside downtown New Bedford. Born and raised here, her dad worked as a longshoreman, earning enough to live in one of the nicer parts of the city. Barrows says New Bedford always felt like a close-knit village. She remembers the 1970s when her rent was $18 a week. Then early 80s, I was paying $25 a week, $50. And then it went like, you know, 100, and it was like 175. And then rent started just going like from 250 to 500. It keeps doubling. Now locals say that doubling is at a tipping point. In 2020, Barros' building was sold to a firm buying up dozens of apartments in New Bedford. She says it wasn't long before the new landlord doubled her rent, and it came at the worst time. It's Christmas. Yeah, I just gave gifts and all that. We're going to end all that for the grandkids and family members. How am I going to dish out money for rent? Barros is 62, and now instead of thinking about retiring from her job as a social worker, she's taken on two more jobs to cover the rent, caring for her disabled sister as a home health aide and doing food deliveries. Barros says she has to skip meals to pay the rent, but her fears go beyond herself. She wonders whether working-class people will continue to have a place in New Bedford. We need more voices out there to speak up and say, hey, this is solely wrong. 
What are you doing to our city? You're allowing other people from other cities to come in here and, and buy out these houses, saying, let's go buy out Fall River in New Bedford. Let's go buy these properties because we'll make our money there. The Port of New Bedford is teeming with welders, painters, and other tradesmen working on massive fishing boats. Off in the distance, you can see cranes on a new dock built to serve the nascent offshore wind industry. New Bedford is pointed in the right direction and solidly progressing. That's Mayor John Mitchell in his State of the City address earlier this year. Mitchell highlighted New Bedford's progress by recalling what the city looked like a decade ago. Double-digit unemployment, precarious city finances, a school department under state monitoring, and a general sense that the city was unsafe. Now Mitchell says New Bedford is enjoying a new dawn. And it's attracting developers like Terra Incognita Partners, the Rhode Island company that bought Sherry Barros' place in 2020. Terra Incognita manager Isaiah Asafison says New Bedford has big potential. We looked at investing throughout the South Shore, throughout Rhode Island, areas of Connecticut. And New Bedford was a place that was very interesting because it had a large inventory of multifamily housing, which is what we do. And he says New Bedford has big tailwinds, powered by local colleges, the working waterfront, an array of cultural institutions, and more. A huge burgeoning culinary scene, which is very attractive for millennials coming to an area and feels like it has an energy of a coastal city. He says many of his tenants work on Cape Cod but live in New Bedford where the rent is cheaper. But some longtime residents say the lofty visions of what New Bedford is becoming were never intended for them. Here's community activist Eric Andrade. Homelessness, increase of couch surfing, folks working three to four jobs to try to maintain, folks moving in with other people, people just, you know, leaving the city. Andrade and others say New Bedford's long-anticipated commuter rail stops, pegged to open next year, have fueled real estate speculation. The city says the bigger problem is the statewide housing shortage. Real estate agent Martin Correa scrolls through home listings at his office in the north of New Bedford. I can tell you. He says inventory these days is about a quarter of historic levels. That's part of why property values here have jumped 76% over the last five years, outpacing Boston and the rest of Massachusetts by a wide margin. Correa worries that wages are not keeping up with the cost of housing. Income is the biggest thing, you know. I don't think that the income supports the prices that we're getting into and even the rental prices. All right, I'm calling this meeting of the Special Committee of Affordable Housing and Homeless Affairs to order. It is 7... Fears of displacement in New Bedford have led to calls for rent control, spearheaded by City Councilor Shane Burgo. Obviously, the goal is to build more housing units. That takes time. It takes years. So in the interim, here's another solution that we can do to help keep those lifelong residents in their home and have some security. Burgo tried to get a question on the ballot to poll New Bedford residents on their appetite for rent control. But Mayor Mitchell vetoed it. Mitchell opposes any limits on rents, which he says would stifle development. But there's no promise that more development will help the people who now spend their days looking for apartments they can afford. It's call waiting time again for Angie Vargas, a 54-year-old New Bedford resident who's been living out of her pickup truck for the last three and a half months. 
Hi, my name is Mary Angeli Vargas, and I'm calling on regard the property owner. Vargas says she spent 16 years in the same apartment before it was sold to a Boston investor. I sleep here in my truck with my two little dogs, she says. And it all started on the 4th of July. I had my independence, but on the street. Vargas says the stress of being homeless is taking a toll on her health. Earlier this month, she suffered two minor strokes. After pursuing dozens of apartments in New Bedford, she just found a place in Fall River. Vargas didn't want to have to leave the city she loves, but she feels she's being evicted from New Bedford. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Britain hosts the world's first global artificial intelligence safety summit this week to kickstart an international conversation about regulating the technology. It's 7.29. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, please visit WBUR.org slash open meetings. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings meetings. Thank you. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is expected to open to a limited number of people today. That's according to the Hamas Border Authority. They include foreign passport holders from a handful of countries, including Austria, Japan and Jordan, as well as aid workers from the International Red Cross and other organizations. Some will be allowed to cross into Egypt for medical care. The Biden administration continues to warn potential foreign adversaries not to try to widen the war between Israel and Hamas. Brigadier General Pat Ryder is a Pentagon spokesman. Our message to any country or group thinking about trying to take advantage of this situation to widen the conflict is don't. Donald Trump Jr. is scheduled to testify today in a New York courtroom in the civil case charging his family with fraud. NPR's Andrea Bernstein is following the trial. The AG wants to prevent Eric Don Jr. and their father from ever running a business in New York again. And Don Jr. and Eric would be among the individuals responsible for paying $250 million back to the state if the judge rules in the AG's favor. Eric Trump is also scheduled to testify in the case this week. Former President Donald Trump is expected to testify next week. Dow futures are down 116 points this morning.
This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston police are preparing to clear the tent encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass. A new ordinance takes effect today, allowing police to remove the tents near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. More now from WBWAR's Deborah Becker. City officials say they found housing placements for more than half of the almost 100 people staying in the encampment on Atkinson Street. Workers say they're hoping to place everyone before the tents are cleared today. Although the city's removed tents before, Sue Sullivan with the New Market Business Association says police will be out in force. What the hope is, what is it they say hope springs eternal, is that they are going to handle it differently, that the enforcement will be there for no open drug use, and no encampments. Boston police say extra officers will be patrolling and a command center will be set up to make sure a new encampment isn't set up elsewhere. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The Everett School Committee plans to meet tomorrow night to pick an acting superintendent. The committee put Superintendent Priya Tahiliani on paid leave. City officials say they removed her from her post after allegations of a hostile work environment. Some school committee members who voted against removing Tahiliani say there's not enough evidence to do so. Tehiliani is Everett's first superintendent of color. The county jail in Dedham has been chosen as a pilot site for an initiative to destigmatize addiction. Starting next month, participants at the Norfolk County Jail and House of Correction will get one-on-one counseling. They'll also get information on the science of addiction and how to treat it. Norfolk was the only jail in New England chosen to be part of the nationwide program. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. Tonight, the Celtics will try to extend their unbeaten season. They'll host the Indiana Pacers. The NHL suspended Bruins defenseman Charlie McAvoy for four games for an illegal hit to the head during Monday night's game. The suspension will cost him nearly $200,000 in pay. Cloudy in mid-40s today with a slight chance of showers. Still overcast tonight and temperatures will fall to around 30 degrees. It clears up overnight and will be sunny tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Ramallah on the West Bank. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden heads to Minnesota today to point to his administration's investments in rural America. Just about a year away from Election Day 2024, the political undercurrents are swirling, in part because of a newly announced primary challenge from Minnesota congressman. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith will be traveling with the president. She joins us now. So, Tamara, let's start with that primary challenger, Dean Phillips. Uh, What is he saying about why he's doing this? 
He's saying the stakes are so high in the 2024 election and enough Democratic voters have expressed reservations about President Biden's age that he shouldn't run unchallenged. So for months, Phillips had been saying he hoped someone else would do it. But none of the big names in the Democratic Party agreed with him. He's focusing his efforts in New Hampshire due to changes in the Democratic primary calendar. President Biden isn't even going to be on the ballot there, though some people are working to write Biden in. Uh, The winner won't get any delegates from New Hampshire, but it gives Phillips perhaps the best chance to make a splash. Okay, Biden is the incumbent president. uh, So how are his allies in the White House reacting to all this? I have to say they are pretty dismissive, both privately and publicly. Here's Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yesterday when I asked her about it. We are very thrilled and thankful to the congressman for voting with the president almost 100 percent of the time in the last two years. And I'll leave it there. They are focused on the general election and don't see Phillips as a real threat. And he's getting a lot of criticism from prominent black and Latino Democrats who say his New Hampshire play is an insult to Democrats' diverse base. And then there's Minnesota Governor Tim Walls, a Democrat. These are always challenging questions for me, mainly because he's a personal friend and I don't understand what he's doing. I guess we have that in our life, friends and family who sometimes do crazy things and we try and understand why. But as far as the president goes and as far as things happen out here, it is absolutely irrelevant. We're focusing on the things that president's getting done. Now, multiple people, including Walls, told me that Biden's Minnesota trip has been in the works for a very long time, well before Phillips threw his hat in the ring. And when I reached out to his campaign, they sent a statement saying Phillips welcomes Biden to Minnesota, but he will be hosting his first campaign event, a town hall in New Hampshire today. All right. So about the trip, Biden's trip to Minnesota. Is he there to talk uh, rural issues? Yeah, he's visiting a family farm to talk about all the ways that the administration is investing in rural America. Things like sustainable farming, uh, broadband Internet. Uh, Rural areas are traditionally Republican strongholds. But Walls says that doesn't mean that the president should ignore these voters. I think it's both smart policy to get out there and talk about this and try and talk about what we need to do. And the politics of it are, is the fact is, is there's folks out there that are still listening, that we can still make inroads in. And a Biden campaign official told me they don't expect to win in rural areas, but they're hoping to cut into Republican leads there uh, because this is going to be a close election and every vote counts. And uh, they're making a real push to rural voters in key states like North Carolina and Georgia, too, Also worth noting, uh, Minnesota isn't the bright blue state that it sometimes has the reputation for being. Biden only won it by a point and a half. Uh, And also, he is going to a fundraiser in the Twin Cities this evening. All right. NPR's Tamara Keith is traveling with President Biden. Tamara, thanks. You're welcome. A lot of politicians in the United States do not like TikTok. A lot of their voters do. More than 150 million people are on TikTok in the U.S. And so Democrats are considering how this app and its popularity with young Americans fits into their campaign strategy. NPR's Elena Moore reports. When North Carolina Congressman Jeff Jackson goes back to his district, everyone wants to talk about it. It's the number one thing that I hear from my constituents when I'm home. That thing? His TikToks. They come up to me in Walmart, on the sidewalk, when I'm at the park with my kids, 
and they say, hey, I really like your video on this. Every week or so, he posts an explainer video talking about the latest news on Capitol Hill and how he feels about it as a first-term member of Congress. So I've been in Congress for less than a year, and this is definitely the biggest mess I've seen so And I don't know if I'm not supposed to say this out loud, but it's true and important, and if you don't now know Now you know everything I know about this, and I'll keep you posted. And he's gone viral, racking up over 2 million followers, which is the most of any lawmaker on Capitol Hill. That could help Jackson in his new bid for state attorney general. And while he may be one of the first politicians to achieve an influencer-level following on TikTok, his Democratic colleagues in Congress are still figuring out how to make a good impression there. By NPR's count, less than half a percent of Congress has an active TikTok account. And among those who do, they're all Democrats. So what's worked so far? Digital strategists say it's all about pushing away from traditional political norms. Not just repurposing our ads, not just taking a tweet and sharing it there. That's Annie Wu, who helped run Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman's social media during his 2022 campaign. She says there's no one way to have an effective TikTok account, but you do have to fit the style. Making content in a way that people like to consume content on that platform, which is engaging and entertaining and things that people aren't just going to comment, vote on. They're going to actually say, this made me laugh or this taught me something or I want to send this to five of my friends because I actually think they're going to enjoy it and not just feel like they're being fed talking points. Wu ran Fetterman's TikTok account leading up to the election. It featured a mix of comedic videos adopting trends of the time. In one video, Fetterman outlined some of his platform while the viral It's Corn song plays. It's corn. There were also more sincere posts where he speaks directly to the camera. But I want to be really serious for a moment right now because election isn't a joke. Abortion rights, voting rights, are so much more at the ballot. Now, as other Democrats in Congress experiment with different TikTok styles, some new candidates only know a political playing field that includes it. My name is Cheyenne Hunt. I'm running to become the first Gen Z woman ever elected to Congress. And today, Hunt is 26 years old. She's challenging vulnerable Republican Michelle Steele in Orange County, California. But before choosing to run, she built up a following on TikTok, talking about politics and spotlighting her life as an attorney. Now she's got over 91,000 followers. And with around a year until election season, the account is part of her campaign strategy. To be able to have conversations with people there, I think, is a critically important skill. And if it's a tool in our tool belt, then I'm absolutely going to use it. Hunt is one of a few different TikTokers who are trying to go from political influencer online to aspiring politician in real life. Elena Moore, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, what the political situation in Gaza may be like if Israel succeeds in its plan to eliminate Hamas. A slight chance of showers today, otherwise cloudy and in the mid-40s. Temperatures fall to the low 30s and skies clear overnight, then upper 40s tomorrow under sunny skies. It's 40 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Harvard is kicking off the first phase of construction for its long-planned expansion into Alston today. The university will host a groundbreaking ceremony for its Enterprise Research Campus. The expansion includes a mixed-use development with lab space and housing. JetBlue's attempt to acquire Spirit Airlines is now in the hands of a Boston federal court. The case is being brought by the U.S. Department of Justice. It says the airline merger could result in less competition and higher prices for travelers. JetBlue argues the opposite. It says the deal will help it become a stronger competitor to larger carriers like Delta and American. JetBlue is Logan Airport's largest carrier. You can find some of the best hard cider in the U.S. in Salem. That's according to a new ranking by USA Today readers. They gave Far From the Tree Cider the number six ranking on the top ten list. Readers pointed to its crisp and fruit-forward ciders. It's 744. During the pandemic, the government spent millions to build U.S. factories to produce personal protective equipment, or PPE. But it has been tough going. Take exam gloves. I don't think any of that capacity is up and running yet. You don't think any of it is? To my knowledge, no. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We hear about efforts to bring production of PPE to the U.S. on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Computer scientists worry that artificial intelligence, or AI, has the capacity to engineer bioweapons, make the global financial system go haywire, and threaten democracy. So governments are moving to regulate it. A two-day global AI safety summit begins today at a venue near London with a storied past. Here's NPR's Lauren Freyer. Never before in all history... Has the British Empire been so In World well War II, the UK chose an English country estate called Bletchley Park to house its secret code-breaking operation. This is where some of the Allies' best and brightest mathematicians, including one named Alan Turing, cracked the Nazis' Enigma code and helped win the war. Gentlemen, meet Mr. Turing. Turing's achievements were immortalized in the 2014 movie Imitation Game. The title comes from a scholarly paper Turing wrote in 1940. 50, asking whether computers could imitate humans. Can machines think with their own consciousness, their own approaches? 
What if they decided to harm us? Stephanie Hare is an expert on technology and ethics who's watching as the conversations touring began at Bletchley Park some 85 years ago resumed today in the same location. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is hosting Vice President Kamala Harris, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and others for an artificial intelligence safety summit. It'll include some frank talk about worst-case scenarios, Sunak says. There is even the risk that humanity could lose control of AI completely. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority. Now, some of this may sound like science fiction. But leaders are also focusing on stuff that's already happening, because AI is already eliminating jobs. It's already being used, says ethicist Hare, in courts, in medicine, in banking, to make decisions that impact people's lives. Most of us don't know that. Maybe we don't get a mortgage that we've applied for. Maybe it's affecting how they read our medical records. Am I interacting with a robot? Am I interacting with a machine? None of that is explained right now. It's about responsibility and even liability. To be very American about it, who can I sue? This week, President Biden issued an executive order to create oversight of AI systems. But the U.S., home to the biggest tech companies, is actually behind on regulation, says AI expert Nina Schick. European Union has been leading the way. Second to that, I would actually put China, then I'd put the U.S. last. But, you know, the flip side to regulation is innovation. And the companies, the money, the entire ecosystem is dominant in the United States. So U.S. corporate leaders, including Elon Musk and officials from Google, Amazon, Meta and Microsoft, are participating in this summit, too. So is China. But with the EU leading in terms of regulation and the U.S. leading on innovation, plus how opaque China may be in all of this, the U.K. is offering itself up as a neutral leader on AI. But leadership on such a global, amorphous topic is pretty tricky, says political scientist Anand Menon. You see this with the climate crisis. There is broad consensus on the dangers we face. But the fact that those dangers seem for some people a little bit remote or a little bit beyond the next election means it's quite hard sometimes to get people to take immediate action. Whatever politicians and tech leaders conclude on AI this week, it's likely to be sweeping theoretical, and also non-binding. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, at Bletchley Park, outside London. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.25 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the latest installment in NPR's special Body Electric series examines the strange physical effects that too much information can have on the body. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has expressed almost unqualified support for Israel and now has linked the conflict to the war in Ukraine. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. We'll hear the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Hundreds of foreign passport holders are being allowed to leave Gaza today for the first time since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. Donald Trump Jr. will testify today in the Trump Organization's civil fraud trial. And a judge is expected to decide today on the legality of a waitlist system for families seeking a place in Massachusetts's emergency shelters. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great with Rob Capolo, exploring songs by Joni Mitchell and Carol King, November 11th at Jordan Hall, celebrityseries.org. Mid-40s and cloudy today with a slight chance of showers. Clearing skies in low 30s tonight. Sunny and upper 40s tomorrow. It's 40 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We are co-hosting this program from different locations in the Middle East this week. On Monday, we were in Tel Aviv in Israel. Today, we're in Ramallah on the West Bank. In each case, we're covering this region's war. Many Americans want to help Israel against Hamas, and in a moment we'll meet a U.S. citizen who volunteered to fight. We begin with dual citizens who are sending money, medical supplies, and even tactical gear. Here's NPR's Adam Byrne. David Rosenberg won't soon forget watching the footage of the October 7th attack on his home country. Hamas, they're evil. They've done things that no human should ever do to another. It touched me. I mean, I literally feel it within. Rosenberg, who's a dual citizen of Israel and the U.S., owns a diamond company in Boca Raton, Florida. He says that within days, his business contacts in Israel were asking him to send help. I received multiple phone calls from several individuals saying that they are in need of level 3 plus and level 4 bulletproof vests. Rosenberg tracked them down. He runs a side business in the arms industry. He says various business associates in Florida chipped in the money. We purchased close to 5,000 vests right off the bat. Rosenberg believes they're now being used by soldiers in the Israel Defense Forces. We asked the IDF to verify that, but they declined to comment. Either way, Rosenberg believes the army needs more equipment. I don't think that the IDF or the state of Israel was 100% ready for such an attack. Certainly, they were not prepared for a full deployment. Steve Weil understands the urge to send help to Israel. He's the CEO of Friends of the IDF, the only official charitable partner of Israel's military in the U.S. Weil says the army isn't asking them for military supplies. We're being asked by the army to raise funds for emergency medical equipment, for blood plasma, for funds for therapies, for soldiers dealing with PTSD issues. But the charity is providing armoured ambulances for Israeli forces. Weil hopes the world understands what the IDF is up against. Literally in a 30-hour period, the army tripled in size. In my opinion, despite this huge, huge logistical challenge, they've done quite well. Whether it's ballistic vests or bandages coming from America, that gear could end up on the front lines soon. That's NPR's Adam Beern. Now, some dual nationals are doing more than donating supplies. They are heading to Israel to join the fight. Boaz is a veteran of the Israel Defense Forces. He left his home in Boston on October 8th, the day after the Hamas attack, to re-enlist. He joins his four daughters, all of them currently serving in the IDF. 
One is named Adi. Her role in the military is to sing. We are not using Boaz or Adi's last names because the IDF does not allow it for their safety. Boaz and Adi spoke with our colleague Michelle Martin. To be honest, I thought my life was not even going to be necessarily centered around serving in the army or being in Israel. I started college, but after a year, I just realized that I have to go back to Israel. So you were already there on October 7th, correct? Yes, I was already there. So, Boaz, here you are, four girls and you. You know, on the one hand, I can see where it's a comfort. On the other hand, I can see where it's frightening because now you have four people to worry about. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I have more than four to be worried about. I have nine million people in Israel to be worried about because we are under a constant threat. However, yes, being here feels so much better doing something for protecting the country and the nation rather than just sitting at home and being sick, worried, and do nothing. And what was it like re-enlisting at this stage of your life? I was very determined that I'm rushing straight to the headquarters of the Israeli Air Force, where I belonged for so long, but it was like 13 years ago. And when I came in, the very young soldier at the reception looked at me and said, hey, Grenda, <laughs> what are you doing here? We do not even have your photo in the system. You are so old. Uh, and I laughed and said, okay, kid, please sign me up. So, Adi, what's it like for you? On the one hand, it's a relief having everybody there. On the other hand, a little nerve-wracking. My service is to sing for people, whether that be people in hospitals or people who lived in the south of Israel who had to be evacuated or for soldiers to boost their morale. So in those moments, you feel hopeful and you feel united. On the other hand, when you go home and you go to sleep, you can't help but replay everything that you've seen and everything that you've heard. So I'm lucky that my family is here with me. And there are many people who, unfortunately, their lives have been changed forever because of what's happened. In the U.S., there's been a lot of focus on how much destruction Gaza is experiencing to this point because of the airstrikes. And I just wondered if you have thought about that. We do have to remember that it all started with a massacre of 1,400 innocent babies, toddlers, teenagers, and elders, with 200-plus people kidnapped. Now, on the other side, there are civilians who are injured and killed. That's very unfortunate. However, the day the Israelis will put down their weapon, there'll be no more Israel. And we live accordingly. And we hope, we pray for peace, but we prepare for the worst. And hopefully this time in Gaza, we'll be able to make once and for all peace with this region. What do you hope for? How do you hope this chapter will end? My hope is that when this operation is over, there will be no more terrorism on the Gaza Strip. There are over two million people there that all they want is to wake up to their families in the morning, go to work, come back, play with their kids, go to their bed peacefully and quietly and, and repeat. 
and by the end of this operation there will be no more terrorists in Gaza. Otherwise, all these lives that were lost are for nothing. Boaz and Adi are dual nationals serving in the Israeli military. We're hearing many views of this conflict, and you can find others at npr.org slash updates. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm A. Martinez. There's a slight chance cloudy skies will give way to showers today. It'll be in the mid-40s. It falls to around 30 tonight, and skies clear overnight for a sunny day tomorrow in the upper 40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, closes November 26th. Learn more at PEM.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For the first time since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, a small group of foreigners is being allowed through a Gaza border crossing into Egypt. It's Wednesday, November 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lawyers representing some of the Americans trapped in Gaza are suing the U.S. government in an attempt to get them evacuated. The United States has the greatest navy in the world, and Gaza is a strip of land that is located on the sea. And the Fed is expected to hold interest rates steady today, but may leave the door open for a future hike. Plus, Boston police plan to clear a tent encampment today near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Advocates are concerned about the safety of people being displaced. I lose two uh, family members a uh, couple of years ago in the overdose. All the time I feel like I can help somebody, I'm going to try. Cloudy in mid-40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Palestinian activists in the occupied West Bank are calling for a general strike, a day after Israel launched a series of airstrikes in a densely populated refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. Gaza's health ministry says at least 50 people were killed and more than 100 others were injured. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the bombardment also appears to have killed a senior Hamas leader. They say the target was this top Hamas commander, Ibrahim Biari. Then they describe him as one of the key Hamas figures in the October 7th Hamas slaughter in Israel. The Israelis say Biari and dozens of other Hamas militants were in a tunnel network beneath the Jabalia camp, and they assess that Biari and many of these others were killed. That's NPR's Craig Myrie reporting. Attorneys for former President Donald Trump are once again asking a federal judge in Florida to delay proceedings in his trial for withholding and concealing classified documents. NPR's Greg Allen reports Trump's attorneys say they need more time to review the evidence. 
Trump faces numerous criminal charges, including that he conspired with his valet and Mar-a-Lago's property manager to hide and withhold classified and top-secret documents from federal investigators. His lawyers say more than three months after the indictment, they still do not have access to all the discovery evidence they're seeking from prosecutors. They're asking U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon to push back filing deadlines by three months. If the judge agrees to do so, it could delay the start of the trial, currently scheduled for May. The judge has given Trump's chief trial lawyer permission to appear by phone today because he's currently in New York for the former president's civil fraud trial. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. A 21-year-old Cornell student has been arrested for posting violent threats against Jewish people on campus. NPR's Tovia Smith reports Patrick Dye has been charged with a number of federal crimes and is facing up to five years in prison. Dye, an engineering student, is charged with threatening to bring an assault rifle to the Ivy League campus to, quote, shoot up Jewish people and behead Jewish babies. In another post, he allegedly called on others to follow Jewish people home and slit their throats. Cornell Hillel Rabbi Ari Weiss says he's relieved by the arrest, but he says many on campus remain on edge. We will continue to remain vigilant and to support students and to work with Cornell University Police Department in ensuring their safety. In a statement, Cornell said extra security on campus would continue and that the horrific anti-Semitic threats should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Tovia Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Advocates who work with families in the Massachusetts shelter system are concerned about emergency regulations filed by state officials. The new rules filed yesterday would create a wait list for families seeking shelter. They'd also allow the state to impose a limit on how long families can stay in a shelter. Liz Alfred is an attorney at Greater Boston Legal Services. She calls the move completely unprecedented given the state's law that requires families to be sheltered. It's extremely concerning. I don't know what's going to happen to families. I don't know where they're going to go. I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's going to be a nightmare for families, for people who are working with those families. A judge is expected to rule today on whether the waitlist plan can move forward. The Army recommended that the man who killed 18 people in Maine should not have a weapon or access to ammunition while on duty. That came after Robert Card was involuntarily committed to a mental hospital for two weeks last summer because of his behavior. However, the Boston Globe reports that did not stop Card from buying guns as a civilian. There were also several warnings to police that Card may carry out violent attacks. There's been no comment on that by law enforcement. Eight members of a Boston public schools task force have stepped down. The group is protesting the district's plans to move most students learning English into general education classrooms by next year. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the departing members say they can't support that strategy. BPS officials say they're facing state and federal pressure to stop isolating English learners from their peers. But about half the task force says English learners do best with regular exposure to their native languages. Miren Uriarte, a former member of the Boston School Committee, was among those to resign. I'm thinking of a ninth grader coming into Boston for the first time and having to learn science and history and social sciences in English. How long do you think that child is going to be in school? Not very long. 
BPS said it plans to still offer some access to native language instruction. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Officials in Wellfleet are looking to increase safety on beaches with no cell phone service by adding Wi-Fi service. So far, three beaches have been awarded funding for the proposal. Those in charge of the project tell the Cape Cod Times they hope to have Wi-Fi up and running by next summer. They say they're looking for equipment that can withstand the weather on the beaches. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. Tonight, the Celtics will try to win their fourth game in a row to start the season. They'll host the Indiana Pacers at the Garden. And at the World Series in Phoenix last night, the Rangers beat the Diamondbacks 11-7. Texas leads the series three games to one. Cloudy today with a slight chance of showers. It'll be in the mid-40s, clearing overnight with temperatures near 30, sunny tomorrow, and in the upper 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in the city of Ramallah, which is visible outside the windows here today, white stone and concrete buildings on the hillsides. It's in the West Bank, a territory that Palestinians nominally run, although Israel has occupied it for more than 50 years. Israelis built settlements here and built their own highways to the settlements, as our team saw while driving here. There's a guard tower. Yes, overlooking yes, that the highway. Police, yes. Oh, there's a road in between these walls. Yes. We were not on that walled highway, instead crossing beneath it on an underpass in a kind of parallel universe. We came here in part to gain insight on the war in that other Palestinian enclave, Gaza. When we had dinner in a restaurant last night, the TVs showed the Al Jazeera channel with nonstop video of bomb damage. For Sabri Saidam, that damage is personal. I have family in Gaza. 44 of them were killed. 44? So far, yes. These are cousins? Cousins and, and, uh, you know, distant relatives and close relatives. Sabri Saidam is a senior official in the Fatah party, which holds office in the West Bank. It's led by President Mahmoud Abbas. Unlike Hamas, which rules Gaza, the Fatah party favors a peace process with Israel, but is widely seen as weak. Saidam admits they haven't been able to accomplish much. But to tell you the truth, we have been caught in a cycle of internal Israeli elections. Five rounds of elections, not in a single one of them. Uh, We're talking about recent years. Yes. Not in a single one of them did electioneering ever use the term peace. So this term has been missed out of Israeli vocabulary for quite a while. There's been less and less support for peace settlements. Only because Israeli politicians did not feel that this is a priority. But now, you know, with people coming more to say, you know, this conflict has to end. We have to do something about it. Do you believe, as many people do, that Israel strengthened Hamas, preferred to deal with Hamas as opposed to Fatah? I would say that Israel was comfortable with seeing the Palestinians divided as a way for divide and rule policy. But that always created this vacuum that needed to be filled. Now the international community is coming back to us and saying, you know, what will you do post-Hamas? What is going to happen to Gaza? What we want to see is a new arrangement that is global, that is world-recognized, of a change of dynamics 
that lead to the resolution of the conflict. After Hamas attacked on October 7th, Israel vowed to destroy Hamas. In theory, this would clear out Fatah's rival for power. Yet Sabri Saidam had a word of caution. He doesn't think Israel can destroy Hamas. America said it wanted to destroy other factions in other countries, Mm -hmm. only to see some of them come back and rule the country. The Taliban. Yeah. I mean, you know, mistakes are made, so one learns from them. Mistakes are not made for you to go and repeat them. If Palestinians were able to hold elections today, who do you think would win? That's a tough question. You're talking to a member of the Central Committee of Fatah. I would like to see my party win. But I would say there's a lot of sympathy now for uh, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad in uh, Palestinians. We have switched to peace since 1988. But people are saying to us, okay, you have taken us on a ride of peace or for peace over uh, decades. You have produced no results. So why not resort to armed confrontation? Sabri Saidam of the Fatah party says this even though his party remains committed to a peaceful two-state solution. I wish I had received you at times when we were discussing achievements. But sadly, we have nothing to offer so far but conflict and sadness in this part of the world. That remark captured some of the mood here in Ramallah, where many streets are quiet and many shops are closed and activists called for a general strike today. Our colleague Daniel Estrin has covered this region for years and was listening in with us to the Fatah official. And Daniel, what stood out to you? Well, I think it's really clear from his words, the internationally recognized Palestinian leadership has lost all legitimacy among average Palestinians. He says so. The sympathy is with Hamas. Average Palestinians despise the Fatah Party's uh, Palestinian authority. First of all, they have no role in this war right now. They're not part of any aid convoys to Gaza. They're not a part of any negotiations. And really, this has just laid bare that their whole platform of cooperating with the U.S. and Israel, a peaceful compromise to this conflict, Palestinians see that strategy has failed, and they see Hamas as basically already winning. Hmm. Well, is it possible for Fatah to take over in Gaza if Israel were to succeed in driving Hamas out? I think the Fatah-led Palestinian Authority would be incapable, and they refuse to take over Gaza on the backs of Israeli tanks. Palestinians would not accept that. And, you know, it just really raises serious questions. If they don't have the legitimacy within their own area in the West Bank or even to take over Gaza, uh, what is the future of the moderate Palestinian leadership? NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv, and I'm in Ramallah. Daniel, thanks. You're welcome. Donald Trump Jr. will testify today in the New York civil case charging his family with fraud. He is the first member of the Trump family to sit for questioning by the New York State Attorney General during this particular trial. Eric Trump is scheduled for tomorrow, and the former president and his daughter Ivanka Trump are set to testify next week. NPR's Andrew Bernstein is here to tell us what to expect. So Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, why are they defendants here? So let me first say this is the case where a judge has already found that Donald Trump and the other defendants, including two of his older children, committed persistent and repeated business fraud by lying again and again about the value of their assets. An issue in this trial is whether there was a conspiracy to do this and how much, if anything, the Trumps owe New York State to right the wrong. According to the charging documents, quote, the fraudulent scheme was integral to the business of the Trump organization and required the participation of Mr. Trump and his children. 
Eric Trump is the main member of the Trump family running the company. Don Jr. has loosened his ties, spending time writing a book and speaking on the conservative circuit. And Ivanka has all but left the company, moving with her family to Florida. Okay, so there's been about a month of testimony already. What does that reveal about the second generation of Trumps? The Trump Organization is a family business. Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric Trump are all executive vice presidents who were involved in running the company, commercial buildings, licensing, foreign deals. And when then-President Trump went to the White House in 2017, he turned over the day-to-day running of the business to his two oldest sons, Don Jr. and Eric. And we've seen in the trial that Don Jr. and Eric Trump approved statements of financial condition. Donald Trump Jr. was involved in commercial buildings like 40 Wall Street, which is one of the big buildings that come up often in the trial. The Trumps told one set of facts to their lenders about that building, that it was worth a lot, and another set to taxing authorities to save on taxes. So what's at stake then for Don Jr. and Eric Trump? The AG wants to prevent Eric, Don Jr., and their father from ever running a business in New York again. And Don Jr. and Eric would be among the individuals responsible for paying $250 million back to the state if the judge rules in the AG's favor. I should say Ivanka Trump is not a defendant. She was a senior White House uh, advisor to her father and left the company in early 2017. So her actions took place too long ago to be part of this case. Okay, now will her brothers have to testify? Could take the Fifth Amendment, but because this is a civil case, the judge could use that against them to draw what's called an adverse inference about them. Another co-defendant, the former CFO Alan Weisselberg, answered many questions when he testified by saying, I don't recall. So you might see some of that. Okay. Now, uh, Don Jr. and Eric Trump, how have they responded to the AG's lawsuit? The family members have steadfastly maintained this is a normal way of conducting a real estate business in New York. Eric Trump recently posted on social media about the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, saying, this is the corruption my father and our family is fighting in New York. The system is weaponized, broken, and disgusting. Donald Trump Jr. said on a conservative news network, this is a kangaroo court. That's NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Nearly half of all health workers want to leave their job. A new federal campaign, though, is trying to reverse that. Here's NPR's Will Stone. Corey Feist is a healthcare executive himself, so he knows the blind spots in his industry, especially among those in charge. It has not been the first line of thought as healthcare leaders to think about workforce. Feist is co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, named after his sister-in-law, an emergency physician from New York City, who died by suicide during the pandemic. This new campaign with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is funded by a law bearing Breen's name. It aims to get hospital leaders to change the policies and cultures that drive burnout and mental health problems. Not only is the workforce really struggling with their mental health, they're uniquely, in many cases, penalized for obtaining the same care that they prescribe to their patients. This is why their first goal is to have hospitals remove questions about mental health that are part of the credentialing process. We need to get rid of those questions and remove all those barriers. The campaign also gives hospital leaders resources to assess the well-being of their workforce and encourages them to talk openly about their own mental health. Dr. John Howard directs the CDC's National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. As they put together the campaign, he says they asked frontline healthcare workers for feedback about the focus. The workers said, you know, really, we're not into personal resilience anymore. We've done that. And having been a healthcare worker for many years, I've done all those trainings. That's why they're looking at how those in leadership can change the the work environment. 
It's really the beginnings of a policy initiative. So how big of a difference can this make? Brian Sexton at Duke University says this campaign is one incremental but important step. There's not one piece of legislation. There's not one thing that the CDC is going to do. It's going to need to be a variety of things tailored to the needs of an individual work setting. Workload is a big contributor to burnout. Time spent dealing with administrative work, electronic health records, insurance instead of patients. Zeni Trunfo Cortez is president of the Union National Nurses United. She's disappointed with the initiative. They need to address the systemic issues that are really the causes of high rates of moral distress driving nurses away from the bedside. Like improving staffing or preventing workplace violence. But those running the campaign say it's just the beginning of a broader effort. Will Stone, NPR News. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Wednesday with WBWAR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear from one of the attorneys suing the U.S. State Department to get Americans trapped in Gaza evacuated. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Greener You, designing and implementing building energy systems for a fossil-free future. Learn more at GreenerU.com. During the pandemic, the government spent millions to build U.S. factories to produce personal protective equipment, or PPE. But it has been tough going. Take exam gloves. I don't think any of that capacity is up and running yet. You don't think any of it is? To my knowledge, no. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We hear about efforts to bring production of PPE to the U.S. on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. Neighborhoods, history, urban legends, and plenty of fun. Dive in now at WBUR.org slash field guide. Overcast with highs in the mid-40s today. There's a slight chance of showers. Still overcast this evening and temperatures may break into the upper 20s. Clearing overnight, then tomorrow sunny with highs in the upper 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. In Select Theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Last week, we told you about the 41 states suing Meta for allegedly designing products that addict teens and worsen their mental health. Now, we hear a lot about researchers studying the psychological effects of time spent online, but what impact can this information overload and doom scrolling have on our physical health? TED Radio Hour host Manoush Zamarodi has been looking into this question for the latest episode in NPR's special series, Body Electric. Manoush, what have you found on this? Yeah, so A, we have been hearing about the connection between social media and rising rates of depression and anxiety, especially in teenage girls for years. So back in 2021, thousands of teens started showing Tourette's-like symptoms, seemingly out of nowhere. One neurologist in Chicago, Caroline Oliveira, told us that she was used to treating teenagers with tic disorders, but what she saw in her office this time was different. What we started to see is women 18 to 19 come in with like an abrupt onset of tics that are very violent, very severe that they had to go to the emergency room for. So a teens ticking violently, this was happening all around the world. And equally mysteriously, within a few months, the symptoms went away nearly as quickly as they'd come on. Eventually, the outbreak was traced to a series of videos about verbal and physical ticking that were all over TikTok. And so it's not like contagious behavior is new. Experts sometimes refer to them as mass psychogenic illnesses, and they have been documented through the ages. There was the French dancing plague of 1518 in 1962, an epidemic of laughter in Tanzania. But this outbreak thanks to social media, spread faster and further. And no surprise, those affected were mostly young women with a history of depression or anxiety. Any idea why those teens and not others? So researchers theorize that going through adolescence during a pandemic and spending lots of time online brewed up kind of the perfect storm. So there's lots of research being done more generally to try and understand mental health and its connection to the body. I spoke to psychiatrist and neuroscientist Saib Khalsa at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He studies how people read the cues their body sends them, or what's called interoceptive awareness. So interoception is a process by which the nervous system senses, interprets, and integrates information about the status of the interior of your body. So if I asked you to tell me, are you breathing quickly or are you hungry, you could readily tune into your body and tell me what you were feeling. But Saib says some of us struggle to deal with all the sensations we feel when we go online. Outrage, anger, sadness, shock, awe, and wonder to the point that Saib says many of us feel physically bombarded. So maybe maybe somebody who feels everything intensely, maybe what they need to learn is how to kind of ignore or at least live with the sensation, realize that it's just a natural part of of their body. It's not something to be feared. All right, so what can we do to cope with all that noise in our lives? Yeah, so Saib suggests that we all give ourselves a regular sensory reset. So if you can, for about 45 minutes, lie in a dark room with no music, no light, and just try to let your mind and your muscles relax as much as possible. And he says that doing this regularly is key to managing anxiety and information overload. I mean, A, we reboot our laptops every so often. Well, we humans need it too. 
All right. That's Manoush Zamarodi, host of the TED Radio Hour in the special series Body Electric. And to hear more about the relationship between our technology and our bodies, go to the TED Radio Hour podcast feed or npr.org slash bodyelectric. The Federal Reserve is not ready to declare victory yet in its long-running battle against inflation, but for today at least, the central bank is expected to hold interest rates steady. NPR's Scott Horsley explains. Inflation has cooled off considerably from its peak last summer, but prices are still climbing faster than the Federal Reserve would like. Ordinarily, the Fed tries to fight inflation by raising short-term interest rates, making it more expensive for people to borrow and spend money. The central bank's done that 11 times in the last 20 months. Today, though, the Fed's expected to leave its benchmark rate unchanged. That's partly because the effects of those earlier rate hikes are still being felt, and partly because long-term interest rates are climbing on their own. The rise in long-term rates has done some of the Fed's dirty work for them. Greg McBride of Bankrate says long-term interest rates, which are set by the bond market, have climbed sharply in the last two months. That takes some of the pressure off the Fed to act today. They can afford to sit back and not raise short-term interest rates at this point because the move up in long-term rates has been so pronounced and it has the effect of reducing demand in the economy. The average interest rate on a 30-year mortgage, for example, is now close to 8%, the highest it's been since the year 2000. Sky-high mortgage rates have thrown a wet blanket on the housing market. Existing home sales have fallen to their lowest level in more than a dozen years. Despite those high borrowing costs, though, other parts of the economy are still humming as Americans spend freely on cars, travel, and entertainment. Last week, we learned that GDP grew at an annual pace of nearly 5% in July, August, and September, more than twice as fast as the previous quarter. Blistering growth like that could reignite inflation. McBride says the Fed's alert to that and keeping its options open. The economy's been remarkably robust, uh, despite the fastest pace of interest rate increases in 40 years. Now, the Fed may feel the need to raise interest rates at some point down the road, simply because the underlying economy is, is doing as well as it is. McBride thinks the Fed's move today will be similar to what it did in September, when policymakers left interest rates unchanged but hinted at another rate hike in the future. The Fed shows no sign that it plans to cut interest rates anytime soon. That's a challenge for anyone taking out a car loan or carrying a balance on a credit card. But it's a plus for those who've managed to save money. Some bank savings accounts and CDs are now paying upwards of 5% interest. That's more than enough to outpace inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Advocates are concerned about the safety of people in an encampment near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard with police planning to clear the area today. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. And a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, playing November 10th through December 10th at The Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military says its attack on a refugee camp in Gaza killed a top commander of Hamas, described as a key figure in the militant's October 7th attack in southern Israel. Health officials in Gaza say the strike also killed dozens of others at the camp. Palestinian activists are calling for a general strike today in East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank in response. Arwa Mena is with Mercy Corps. She says conditions are dire for many Palestinians in Gaza. People have to line up in front of bakeries and uh, points of distribution for clean water for up to three and four hours uh, um, during this very risky environment of having bombardment happening around the clock. Federal prosecutors have filed charges against a student at Cornell University. The 21-year-old is accused of making anti-Semitic death threats online. NPR's Brian Mann says the student is a junior at Cornell. The threats posted online were brutal, promising a mass shooting, saying male Jewish students would be stabbed, female students who are Jewish would be sexually assaulted. Patrick Dye is innocent until proven guilty, and he hasn't yet entered a plea. He's expected in court later today. These social media threats came as tensions over Israel and Gaza have surged on New York college campuses. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston police plan to start clearing the tent encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass today. A new ordinance allows police to remove tents near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. City officials say they've found housing for more than half of the people staying there. They're hoping to place everyone before the tents are cleared. Housing prices in New Bedford are rising faster than in Boston and the rest of the state. They're up more than 70 percent over the last five years. Now, as WBUR's Simone Rios reports, many low-income renters are wondering if they'll be able to stay. City officials say New Bedford is in the midst of a turnaround in its fortunes, with a new offshore wind industry taking shape and an increasing city population. But renter Sherry Barrows says the only change she's feeling is the rising rent, like the increase she learned about in a text from her landlord last summer. And he says, we're going up on the rent again. I was like, again? $125 more. Do you, you don't mind that? Of course I mind that. What are you asking me if you mind? I have no choice. Now Barros wants New Bedford to pursue a rent control policy. City officials say that would discourage what's most needed to address the housing crunch, more development. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Two ancient bronze sculpture fragments from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston are now in the hands of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in New York. The museum determined that the sculptures were most likely looted from an archaeological site in what is now Turkey. The MFA tells the Boston Globe they offered to directly repatriate the items to Turkey. The country told the museum to work with the Manhattan DA as part of a larger investigation. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. The Celtics host the Indiana Pacers tonight at the Garden. The Seas remain unbeaten so far this season. Bruins defenseman Charlie McAvoy will begin serving a four-game suspension tomorrow night. The league suspended him for an illegal hit to the head during Monday night's game against Florida.
Cloudy and mid-40s today with a slight chance of showers. Still overcast tonight and temperatures will fall to around 30 degrees. It clears up overnight and will be sunny tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Ramallah on the West Bank. We have news out of Gaza today. A border crossing to get out of Gaza is now apparently open for some people. The Hamas-run General Authority for Crossings and Borders says the exit to Egypt, the Rafah crossing, is open to some foreign passport holders and aid workers. This is a developing story, and we do not know if the some foreign passport holders include about 400 Americans stuck in Gaza. One of those Americans is Abu Dhabi from Massachusetts, who's in Gaza with his wife and one-year-old. He sent a voice message on Sunday. We are almost out of drinking water today. I think we have enough just to last us through the night, and then uh, tomorrow would be basically out. Um, If we can't find an alternative source uh, of water tomorrow, we'd have no choice but to turn to the unfiltered or unprocessed well water, which in normal days is is considered non-drinkable water. Before today's announcement of a border crossing open for some people, lawyers for dozens of those Americans sue the U.S. government to try and force an evacuation. Ghassan Jamia is one of those lawyers who have filed suit in California and Texas and Michigan with more coming. He joins us now. Um, so let's start off with uh, an estimated 600 Americans trapped inside Gaza. How far does the opening at uh, Rafah go to address your concerns about safe passage for Americans there? A, it doesn't go uh, far at all. Uh, In fact, all initial reports indicate that of the people allowed to cross the Rafah crossing, less than 5% were foreign national uh, or dual citizens. And of those foreign nationals and dual citizens, all were Jordanian passport holders or Eastern European. There are no indications that any Americans, including any of our clients, were allowed to cross at this limited opening today. Well, so just no dent at all then? Nothing at all. All right. Uh, So on the lawsuits then, what's the objective of the lawsuits? The objective is to get the State Department to issue an emergency evacuation order. There's precedent for this, A. The State Department has utilized its Navy and its military and its planes and helicopters to evacuate uh, U.S. citizens from the Taliban in Afghanistan, from Lebanon. So the goal is to safely evacuate all American citizens trapped in Gaza, just like all Israeli Americans were evacuated safely from Haifa. Tell us about your clients, the people you're fighting for. Absolutely. I represent two grandmothers, two 80-plus-year-old ladies who have 10 grandchildren each, who are taxpaying citizens, who have missed birthdays, who have missed special occasions as a result of being trapped in Gaza. The limited communication that the family has with them They tell them that they're fearful, that they may not make it home. They tell them that they love them. 
and they're afraid that they're going to die before they're ever um, helped out of Gaza. I mean, it just it just sounds like there's no hope. I mean, is, is that putting it too lightly or just... It's it's not lightly at all, uh, A. And that's why these families have resorted to these lawsuits. Suing the government is no small task. And so because the State Department has been effectively uh, not communicative and not relaying information to these families, they have no resort but to file a lawsuit to try to put pressure on the government. And And hopefully today is an indication that this pressure is working and hopefully it leads to all 600 Americans being evacuated. All right, Gassan Shamia is a lawyer representing Americans stuck in Gaza. He's one of several attorneys across the country filing lawsuits against the U.S. government. Thank you very much. Thank you, A. And NPR has reached out to the State Department, and we were told they do not comment on ongoing litigation. Today is the deadline set by the Pakistani government for all undocumented immigrants to leave or face deportation. Pakistan is home to over one million Afghans, some of whom have lived in this country for decades, fleeing war after war after war in Afghanistan, and many who fled Taliban rule following the U.S. troop withdrawal just a couple of years ago. In the last few months, tens of thousands of those Afghans have been arrested and deported. Rick Nowak covers Afghanistan for the Washington Post. He joins me now from Kabul. Why is the Pakistani government asking these people to leave the country? Good morning. Well, the Pakistani government portrays this as a decision that was long overdue. Uh, They say they've done far more than any other country for Afghan refugees. They've hosted millions who arrived uh, over various waves of migrations uh, since the 1970s. And they argue that this is a burden they can no longer carry. But this deportation drive also comes at a time when Pakistan's economy continues to sink deeper and deeper into crisis. And it comes amid concerns over a mounting number of suicide bombings and attacks in Pakistan that have been blamed on Afghans. So a lot of these refugees, they're being scapegoated as a result of that. And the Afghans who are leaving Pakistan, what are you hearing from them? Well, a lot of the refugees who have left voluntarily over the last few weeks um, have said that they don't see a future in Pakistan if the country turns against them in that way. Many um, have stayed home over the past few weeks out of fear that the police could arrest and deport them. They didn't send their children to school. Um, Many parents have lost their jobs. So it's obviously an extremely tough situation, but it's also a very tough decision for them to leave. Many have been in Pakistan for decades and and some were born in the country, but never received citizenship. So uh, they're heading to a country they have never been to really into an unknown future. And is that country, Afghanistan, prepared to receive so many people? I mean, if these people have no home in Pakistan and they're going to go to Afghanistan, can they handle them? Well, it's clear that there aren't many open jobs that are waiting for them. And there'll be girls, young women uh, among those returnees um, who are able to get some education in Pakistan, but who will now be returning to a country where schools and universities are closed for them. In terms of preparation, the Taliban-run government has announced that they will create reception camps where refugees can stay for some time. But so far, there's not a broader plan to reintegrate those people really into the economy. What's the relationship between Pakistan and the Afghan government these days? I think it's a lot tenser than either side would have hoped for two years ago when Pakistan really seemed to be one of the Taliban-run government's strongest advocates on the international stage. 
One of the top concerns for Pakistan right now is the deteriorating security situation in the country. And Pakistani authorities say that the Taliban-run government is at least in part to blame. Uh, they argue that many of the suicide bombers and attackers who've killed Pakistani civilians and soldiers in recent months are based in Afghanistan and that the Taliban isn't doing enough to detain them. That's The Washington Post, Rick Nowak in Kabul. Rick, thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about numbers expected out later this morning from the Commerce Department that'll show if the cost of residential construction eased in September. A slight chance of showers today, otherwise cloudy and in the mid-40s. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight and skies clear overnight, then upper 40s tomorrow under sunny skies. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Boston-based State Street will soon see changes to its leadership structure. The financial service company says current CEO Ron O'Hanley will also take on the role of president in the new year. That's after current president Lou Maiuri announced his plans to retire. The iconic Boston Park Plaza Hotel is officially under new ownership. The century-owned old hotel sold to the Hilton Hotel chain for $370 million. Under the deal, the Park Plaza will also rebrand under the Hilton name. The Park Plaza is the third largest hotel in the state with more than 1,000 rooms. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston officials say by the end of today, the tent encampment near the area known as Mass and Cass will be gone. Police will clear the tents under a new city ordinance. People must be offered shelter before tents are removed. City officials said they've found housing for more than half of the almost 100 people who'd been staying there. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been visiting the area and has this report in an advisory here. This story includes descriptions of a drug overdose. The tents are mostly in a cordoned-off area of Atkinson Street. On one day last week, many people were gathering belongings in bins or shopping carts. Dozens of people were injecting or smoking drugs. A man walked by selling candy. some candy? 75 cents, three for two. Victor Arias, a security officer with Ware Security, a private firm hired by the Boston Public Health Commission, has seen a lot of human suffering in the encampment. It's not only drug addicts, it's a lot of people got a lot of mental problems and everything. He's been patrolling the area for the last two years. I love to be out here because I can help people. People really need help out here, a lot of help. 
In fact, Arias had just helped save someone's life. Moments before, he quickly responded to a crowd that gathered with people yelling, Help! Overdose! Arias and a Boston Public Health Commission worker gave a man lying on the ground the overdose reversal drug Narcan. The man's eyes started to flutter. Inhale. Yeah. Pause over there. Exhale. Through your mouth. They got the man upright, but he was unsteady. Take deep breaths. really going to help you, okay? Eventually, the man opened his eyes and smiled. Overdose to, um, today, Copy man. that. You got cup. Narcan, okay? You want to take it easy. You don't want to do any drugs for a little while. Hey, got Narcan. The man refused an ambulance and walked back into the crowd. Arias says this is a regular part of his job. Do you have to do that a lot? Oh, yeah. At least a couple, sometimes four or five. A day? Per day. Boston workers have set up an area to help people find substance use treatment. They're also providing information about housing and making sure those in the encampment know that police will start clearing tents today. 40-year-old Corey Hines has been staying in a tent for most of the past year. He says a worker connected him with housing being offered through a nonprofit. So I will be going there. They will not see me again out here, and I will respect the city ordinance. The new ordinance was prompted by increased violence. Some groups stopped sending their outreach workers to the area, citing safety concerns. Sue Sullivan with the Newmarket Business Association says people need to get housed as winter sets in, and police will have to take steps to make sure they're not staying on the streets. They're going to take care of the people who need shelter and need all different things, but it's all the other people that will scatter to the wind that... The police and others are going to have to make sure that they're not in every alleyway and every park and every neighborhood. At least 10 additional officers were patrolling the area this week, and police say they will work to prevent encampments from setting up elsewhere. Advocates are concerned about the safety of those dispersed. They say deaths increase when people don't have access to overdose reversal drugs. Abigail Judge, who co-leads Boston Human Exploitation and Trafficking, a group that helps women in the encampment, says housing is just one part of the solution. I don't feel optimistic that this is going to create systemic change. I, I think that the reasons why people come here are not going to go away because people are housed, because people are in active addiction, so they are neurobiologically dependent on substances. Security officer Victor Arias is worried, too, mainly about the disruption of what he says is a community that's been created in the encampment. Arias says it can be riskier for people to use alone, and he knows firsthand having had family members die from drug use. I lose two, two uh, family members a couple of years ago in the overdose. I'm sorry. So, uh, fortunately, nobody... Um, can help them because they was in the room and they died. All the time, I feel like I can help somebody. On day honor, I'm going to try to help them. Arias expects he'll continue to patrol the area even after the tents are gone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up.
up at the top of the hour on WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour with the voices of families being evacuated from parts of Ukraine. And get a look at how the island of Taiwan is dealing with climate change. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people. And proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has expressed almost unqualified support for Israel and now has linked the conflict to the war in Ukraine. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. We'll hear the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Some foreign passport holders can leave Gaza today through the Egypt border crossing for the first time since the Hamas attacks on October 7th. The Federal Reserve is not expected to raise interest rates today, but it may raise them in the future as inflation continues to rise. And Vice President Harris, tech leaders and others are meeting in the U.K. today to discuss the risks of our artificial intelligence. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. Mid-40s and cloudy today with a slight chance of showers. Clearing skies and low 30s tonight. Sunny and upper 40s tomorrow. It's 39 degrees in Boston. A teachable moment this morning about how the federal government plans to borrow all that money between now and January. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I'm David Brancaccio. The Federal Reserve will wrap up its two-day meeting on interest rates later today with Chair Jerome Powell's news conference in about five hours. Rates will likely stay steady, and investors are focusing on something else. The Treasury Department's news just now about how it will borrow more than $100 billion for its new accounting quarter. And to do it, it will issue slightly more short-term debt. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more on why the pros are watching this. Four times a year, the Treasury Department announces how much the government will borrow and how it will borrow for that quarter and in the near future. It's usually a snooze fest. Morgan Stanley Global Chief Economist Seth Carpenter made those dry announcements years ago when he was at the Treasury Department. Part of the objective when I was doing the press conferences was not to make headlines. But no more. The interest rate the government pays on the bonds it issues to borrow money has soared getting investors' attention. Things like mortgages are tied to bond rates, so Carpenter says they're getting pricier, too. When the 10-year Treasury yield goes up, the 30-year mortgage rate goes up, and we've seen mortgages up around 8%. And the Fed didn't have to lift a finger. In fact, later today, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is expected to announce the Fed is leaving interest rates unchanged, letting the bond market do the heavy lifting. The Fed has been pushing interest rates higher to cool the economy and beat back inflation. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. 
S&P and Nasdaq futures are really quite steady with the news from the Fed coming around 2 Eastern time. And another number, 25, the number of ships that will be allowed through the Panama Canal per day starting Friday that is down from the normal 36. It hasn't been raining down there and the water level in the canal is running low. It was the driest October in that region since 1950. We'll know today how much was spent to build houses and apartments in September. Now, the cost per square foot for a new home is rising, but the average size of properties is shrinking as building costs and interest rates rise. Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports. Early in the pandemic, some of our houses started to feel a little cramped. People found themselves working from home, spending more time at home. Rose Quint with the National Association of Home Builders says buyers were looking for home offices, space to work out in. Of course, very low interest rates allow them to buy those bigger homes. But now we've seen a force more powerful than work from home, which is affordability. Allie Wolf with the housing data firm Zonda says higher mortgage rates are driving demand for smaller homes. And the average size of a new build is down 10 percent since 2018. And while today's buyers may wish they could afford that extra bedroom or a bigger kitchen. Having builders pivot towards more affordable homes, usually by offering a smaller square footage, can be really good. Wolf says it helps ensure there's affordable inventory in the long run. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on think or swim. More at schwab.com. Tonight will be one week since America's deadliest mass shooting of the year when a gunman killed 18 and hurt 13 others at a bowling alley and at a bar in Lewiston, Maine. The shooter was found dead Friday night. Maine's governor, Democrat Janet Mills, now wants to convene a bipartisan forum to discuss the future of the state's firearms policies, with few details beyond that. Maine does not require permits to own guns or rifles. Concealed carry is permitted without a permit for most people over 21. For more, let's turn to Emily Bader. She's a reporter for the Maine Monitor, operated by the nonprofit Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Back in 2019, help me understand this, Maine legislators rejected a red flag law as some other states have. What was enacted instead? So Maine enacted what's called a yellow flag law, which basically means that only police can take guns or weapons away from a person they deem at risk. Police get a report or something that indicates a person may be at risk to themselves or others. They bring them into protective custody. And then what is different than a lot of other states is they then have to seek basically approval from a medical practitioner that says that, yes, they agree this person is a risk. With that medical practitioner's approval, they then bring it to a court. A judge grants the restriction, and then police can take away that person's weapons. And what are you hearing from your reporting? Some critics worry that the yellow flag system slows things down. It slows things down. Also, there's just so many other steps that have to go into it, especially that medical practitioner. Actually, in a report by a panel 
released earlier this year, the deadly force panel, they actually conceded that this law is actually underused because there's just not a high enough availability of medical practitioners to do these evaluations. I spoke to Dr. Jeff Barkin. He's a psychiatrist, immediate past president of Tri-County Mental Health Services, which operates out of Lewiston. And he said that it's really difficult for a medical practitioner to make those sort of determinations, especially on the spot, especially knowing whether or not that person's a risk. I was looking back at some of the legislation that did not make it into Maine law prior to pandemic. It's a range of things that didn't make it. It includes, I think, there was an idea to force criminal background checks. Right. So several bills were put forward that did not pass. That includes background checks. There are also no permits required for sales, banning bump stocks or other devices that make it easier to pull the trigger if fire more bullets. Those all failed. Emily Bader is a reporter for The Main Monitor, a nonprofit news organization. She also covers health care issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Back in 2016, voters in Maine, by a narrow margin, turned down, rejected a measure to require background checks for sales of firearms that would have had exceptions for those meant for hunting, self-defense, competitions, and shooting ranges. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. There's a slight chance cloudy skies will give way to showers today. It'll be in the mid-40s. It falls to around 30 tonight and skies clear overnight for a sunny day tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.